Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Okay, here we go. Welcome to Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders podcast. I'm Brady Huggett. Our guest today is Mary Tanner. She is a longtime banker in the biotech industry. Along with her husband, Fred Frank, they have done hundreds and hundreds of deals between biotech companies, between biotech and pharma uh, over the years. So we went over some of those deals in this podcast. She worked on the IPO for Cetus, which was the second biotech IPO ever. She worked on the Amgen Immunex merger. She also worked on the Roche-Genentech merger several times. The relationship between those two went through many phases. And we also talked about um, glass ceilings and feminism in both the banking world and, and biotech. So it was an interesting conversation, not just because I said so, but because it, it, actually, it actually was, or I thought it was. Yeah, that's it for me. I'll talk to you on the other side. Here it is, your First Rounders podcast with Mary Tanner. to be on an advisory board or a trustees board for a not-for-profit. That's part of why you're there. Well, especially for you, though, I would assume. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's talk about um, Lehman Brothers. Oh. So let's see. You joined in – I know you joined in 1978, I think. That's right. But you did not – most of the people that I've had on, on for these podcasts come from a science background, and that was not, I think, the no, case No, I didn't you. have a science background. I majored in philosophy and related fields at Harvard. Although, interestingly, it was a time when the biotechnology industry was just beginning to emerge. My roommate, Ellen Rothenberg, um, actually, I believe, became the first woman professor at Caltech. Mm-hmm. She was studying molecular biology with the great Conrad Block and David Baltimore. I also knew Bob Swanson, mm-hmm. who was then at MIT. And it struck me as virtually odd that he would run around so convinced that biology could be a business. And of course, it's hard to remember now, but the the very beginning of the biotechnology industry was really about industrial and agricultural biotech. Right. It wasn't about therapeutics. That came much, much later. Mm -hmm. And so the early investors in the industry were really two kinds of folks. Um, One were corporations that were actually interested in the emerging technology, Lubrizol, Monsanto, Dow, and then retail investors because it it was obviously one of those areas that, like social media, promised an enormous sheer face in in investing. Mm a huge new opportunity. So, in fact, I knew Swanson before my celebrated husband, Fred Frank, knew him and worked on Genentech. Um, So I think the most interesting thing about the industry is there will be areas of technology that emerge in academia are actually taken up and made into venture companies, and then it doesn't really quite work, and people become demoralized. They desert it. So antibodies, Mm -hmm. they're at the beginning the great Cohen and Boyer patent. Um, Stan Cohen and Herb Boyer were co-founders of Cetus. And nothing happened commercially until Rituxan, which was, what, uh, 10 years later, mm-hmm. 12 years, 15 years later. Um, same with gene therapy. I've worked on three generations of gene therapy companies. And now this year, for the first time, a pharmaceutical product based on gene therapy was approved in, in Europe. 
Yeah, I and wanted, several companies have come public now using that technology. Right, yeah. So um, I wanted to ask you about technologies that uh, that you might see promising. But let's well, – I think we'll get to that eventually. So anyway, <clears throat> you were at Yale. You studied philosophy. But I, where did you no, go? No, I was up? at Harvard. Oh, I'm actually. sorry. Harvard, yeah. It I finally was, got it right. I married a Yale. Yeah, Fred was from <laughs> Yale. Um, where did you grow up? I grew up in New Jersey in Bergen County when it was bucolic and wonderful. Now there's a McMansion on every uh-huh. lot. But in those days, our neighbor was a truck farmer. And I went to public schools. Uh-huh. And then I got in. I wanted actually to go to Yale. The year I applied to colleges was the first year that Yale and Princeton accepted women. I got accepted at Princeton. I didn't get accepted at Yale. And so I got accepted at Harvard and went to Harvard. Um, And it was a very difficult time on college campuses because we were in the Nixon-Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. And my first two years at Harvard, you know, there were strikes against the university and against the war. And it was a very upset time with faculty who were very sharply divided, obviously, over that. It's hard to remember that now. But that's, of course, because there was a draft. Mm -hmm. might have been the same with Afghanistan and Iraq. But blessedly, there was no draft. To go back to your, so you wanted to go to Princeton or or Yale, you said? No, I wanted to go to Yale. Um, I wanted to go to Yale because my father had spent his war years, Second World War years there. He had volunteered for the Marine Corps, but he was a real math and engineering genius. And so, as you know, Yale gave over part of its campus to the U.S. military. And my father taught ballistics to troops and bridge building to troops who were being sent out to the Pacific. And, of course, he had the glory of spending his evenings with Yale professors, and he developed a great affection for it. I was his first child, so... So growing up, you heard a lot of Yale stories, and yeah, you thought sure that's where to go. And then yeah. you realized that, okay, they were opening the doors to women. You said, that's the school for me. Right, right. Huh. But, and, but instead, I went to Harvard, which is a great school, yeah, although Yaleys don't think so. But. Right, yeah. <laughs> so obviously, your father was all for you going to Yale. Yeah. He, he must have thought that was great. But what was your initial intent? Was it was it to study philosophy? Did you think you were going to get into, I don't know, management or something? Or Well, you know, I think kids in those days were much less directed than I see my son, who's a sophomore at Yale now, mm-hmm. being. And you went with the theory you were getting a great education. And remember that America was sort of blowing up over the Vietnam War. So I didn't really go with any specific intent. And Despite the enormous educational background in my family and my father's engineering, he actually had three engineering degrees, I think, Um, science wasn't something that women were really encouraged to do, Mm -hmm. Um, although I loved science in high school and took some in college. So science as a business didn't I didn't understand it. Do you follow? There was none of that sure, in my yeah. family. Yeah. Engineering, sure, building things, mm-hmm. bridges, tunnels. But um, there was no one in the family who had been a chemist at DuPont, for example. So, But um, I will say that um, when I left Harvard, um, I left to do not anything related to biology. I went and I was one of the first women management interns at an international bank in their management training program. And I fell into it simply because my father said, you're going to be very good at finance. I don't know how he knew that. But he knew it, yeah. Yeah, I knew it. And I discovered that I liked finance very much. I just didn't like being a commercial banker. In those days, banks um, were very strictly divided between investment banks and commercial banks. So I left there and I went to a partnership that was formed by some former Lehman guys and worked on the oil and gas business. And I've always thought that one of my instinctive conceptual understandings of biotech and pharmaceuticals and technology, life sciences industries, came from that early experience because um, we were in the business of raising money for wildcatters. And these guys from West Texas in the Gulf would come in with their sonics and their maps and their lookdowns and their cores and say that there was oil there. And that's and called, you'd that's have called, to go drill the hole, you know. It's sort of like drugs. That's wildcatting? Wildcatting. Hmm, I didn't know that. And you sold differing slices of the risks and rewards of the oil well. You sold the overage interest. You sold the wellhead interest. Two classes of investors who had different risk preferences. So years later, when I was at Lehman Brothers and began working with Fred and began working on the biotech 
industry. It was very logical to me that you would take a project, whether it was green chemicals or it was a pharmaceutical product, and you would sort of divide it into slices of risk and reward mm -hmm. and try to do things like corporate partnering deals. Fred and I did the first corporate partnering deal ever done, which was actually with a German company called Merck KGAA. Yeah. Um, and it's hard to remember that now because obviously it's partnering all, and risk yeah, sharing it's like the lifeblood is now. the lifeblood of, of the industry. And yeah. in fact, it's dominant method of, of funding, yeah. certainly on the therapeutic side. I guess the question for me is, how does the philosophy background get you into banking? You just sort of applied for a position and they said, well, we think you're bright. You're out of Harvard. We'll, we'll take you Well, home. there was one step in between I had to do, which is accounting. You must have accounting to be a good financial analyst. So I went to school at night. Oh, okay. First year I was working. And I didn't actually initially do very well in accounting until a friend of mine who was at Morgan Stanley said, Mary, you speak a few languages. Those languages have grammar. They have syntax. Some of them have different alphabets. They have rules. Accounting has rules. You mm -hmm. may think they're dumb, but those are the rules. So <laughs> just get over it and learn it, which was very good advice. And I became actually an extremely good financial analyst. That was the moment right there? That was the moment huh. I figured it out. Huh. Okay. And then at Lehman Brothers, I think when we talked earlier on the phone, you mentioned that um, back then it was even more of a boys' club than it is now. Mm. And from the stuff that you said, number one, you wanted to go to Yale when it would just open up to, to men. Um, I mean, to women, sorry. Um, do you think that there's something about you that you wanted to push these boundaries or was this just a sign of the times? Oh, I think a bit of both. I've always been ambitious. And once I was really intellectually interested in finance, I became ferocious about it. Uh -huh. um, it was also a mark of the times. I mean, uh, there had been a couple of big lawsuits, uh, mostly at law about uh, practices at law firms that caused professional service firms to stand up and take notice. Mm -hmm. But it was also graduating from Harvard in that time and place. I mean, I knew I would have opportunities that, for example, my mother never had. And she was perfectly capable of what I've done. So it was it was a ferocious adventure. And what was your, I'm sorry, was your mother, did she have a career where she was a... My mother went to Barnard, uh -huh. finished very high in her class. Um, she went to work at AT&T, which, believe it or not, in those days was a wonderful place for women. And they actually could rise into management, uh -huh. believe it or not, from lowly positions. And uh, then she had a couple of kids and she went out to teach. She got a teaching degree so that all of us could go to fancy Ivy League schools. Sure. Because in those days, there was none of the kind of programmatic financing that's available to the middle class at the Ivy League schools. Then that was unheard of. So she was teaching uh, just general, like yeah, third, fourth grade or something? Yeah, she taught just about every kind of grade you can think of except first grade. She never wanted to have the moral burden of teaching children to read. Mm -hmm. um, she even worked with disabled and autistic children. So she was a great example of someone who managed to do both, mom and work, but never you know, had any opportunities to do what I've done. Okay, back to Lehman. Uh, I was reading around someplace that um, I think Fred was working on a deal and brought you in to assist or something. And then when the deal was over, uh, you would have gone back into the pool, I guess. And he said, no, no, I'm, she's really, really bright. I need her on my team and sort of brought you in full time. Is that correct? Right. Well, in those days, the business model of investment banks wasn't at all like it is now. Basically, and there was a pool of associates and then there were a bunch of partners who had accounts. And the way you kind of got new business is maybe you knew someone on the board of one of your clients. And so you went to call on him and then you got an associate from the pool and went and did business. Fred was really the first person to have the vision to organize an investment banking practice around industrial areas. And it was so obvious to both of us that, you know, if you were doing due diligence on a semiconductor company, you really needed to know something about technology. Mm -hmm. And it was too painful for clients to have to re-educate, you know, new associates each time they did a deal. And that was even more market in new industries like biotechnology. So um, his vision, which was to keep me to, and to form a group, and we, we did form a big practice group initially, and there were a couple of other partners uh, that worked with us. Initially, we covered both life sciences and healthcare and technology, and eventually we separated those 
two businesses. Ah. Now, of course, the dominant model <clears throat> is, that both? is right. in all professional service industries mm-hmm. is these practice groups that surround industries. It's good for clients, and those service professionals have more expertise. I see. You're, you're, so you're saying that he, he kept you around, brought you in specifically to be part of this group that was going to become uh, sort of an expert in the biotech field exactly. and, and technology in general and then f- go investing in it. And he was also, I think, a philosophy major. He was a philosophy major at Yale. So One you both needed to shared. sort of catch up on, on the science. Yes, but you know um, science isn't hard to learn if you like it. And I had the best teachers in the world. You just interviewed Lee Hood. Right. You know? And he told I was you, present when he created Applied Bio. Huh. It taught me how how he was going to do it. So you learned it all on the on, on the run. Correct. You do need to like science. You need to have a retentive mind. I think the important thing to remember when you're looking at commercializing science is to be able to distinguish the really important value inflection points, and then what happens when you get there. Is it okay, more time and more money will solve the problem? Or is it going to be unknown? I'll give you an example. Early on in CETUS, which was one of the first, along with Genentech, to move from industrial and agricultural biotech to therapeutics, they had a product called beta seron, interferon, mm-hmm. which is well-known. And um, even manufacturing proteins in those days was a high black art. And Genentech basically helped the FDA write the original rules on viral protection and so forth. And we didn't know anything about proteins being glycosylated. So they had done a trial, and the drug didn't work. It had worked in mice and all sorts of wonderful things. And I remember saying to the head of R&D, so what what do we do now? He goes, I don't know. (laughs) So... When you're learning about science and you're financing science businesses, you really need to have this long, thread-like view of what the process is going to be. Now, obviously, 25 years later, everyone, both investors and service professionals and management teams, are expert on these matters. There are very few such broad, I don't know, kind of answers, but they still happen. Yeah, so back then it was almost um, all uncharted water. It was all uncharted water, both for investors and for management teams. And there were interesting things. For example, the big pharmaceutical companies were very chary about these small biotech therapeutics companies initially. Their view was, well, we'll just let them run out of money, and then we'll hire the really good people there and bring them in-house. They didn't realize that those kind of people who founded those companies didn't want to work at a big mm-hmm. pharma company. They wanted the entrepreneurial environment. And, you know, the general startup culture, which this country has to an exquisite degree, was forming everywhere in the technology industry, in the life sciences industry, in laboratory instrumentation. Because, you know, science is really only what we can see and measure. So back to Fred bringing you in. I think you worked there for maybe something like 10 years before you guys were actually married and formed like a That's team. That's right. Yeah? That's right. I was already a managing director. Was that, um, I, I guess, is that something that would have been frowned upon if you had been dating that time? or? Well, you know, um, American Express owned Lehman Brothers at the time. I didn't and know. I've always thought American Express is really an extraordinary corporation, very well run through several generations of management, very high sense of purpose and sense of its duties and self. Mm-hmm. I think because it was one of the earliest truly global companies. You know, as a student in Europe, I could walk into an American Express office if there was a riot going on in the streets of Paris and feel safe, safe, you know, literally safe. So Jim Robinson was um, CEO of American Express at the time, and he was married to a very successful woman and very um, interested in American Express being seen as, you know, promoting both minorities and and women in the right way. And um, Fred called him up and said, Jim, Mary and I are getting married. I don't know what our policy is about this, but I will certainly be prepared to leave if if that's necessary. And Jim apparently said to him, Fred, I don't know what our policy is, but I think it may have just changed. (laughs) (laughs) So he was a great sponsor of this. And, you know, I was already an established professional by then. I'd done a couple of $60 billion mergers in Europe. And and we had a large practice between us. So... um, But there must have been some, uh, you know, you didn't decide to get married on a Tuesday after meeting on a a Monday. (laughs) There'd been some time where you were dating. um, Sure. And I guess you, you needed to keep that quiet or... 
Yeah, well, I think that um, probably wasn't all that much of a secret. I think everyone knew that I was very ferocious about my career, and you asked about whether it just happened or I or I was enthusiastic about it. I'd never expected to marry. I figured that career was to, number a one. Career was number one, and that would be sole devotion. That would be the only way I could succeed. So um, everyone knew that, and I think um, everyone was sympathetic because by then we had a pretty big practice group, and we were fairly well known as a team, not just Fred and me, but the whole team. whole team, yeah. So, but I think that um, the general atmosphere of Lehman Brothers and American Express reinforced it was very entrepreneurial and merit-oriented, and I'm very grateful for that. It's my fondest memory of the firm. Many people don't know the ancient history of Lehman, but um, it actually was a true merchant bank. And when the Lehman family ran it, they would put up capital to start companies. So they put up the money to help Dr. Sarnoff start RCA. Hmm. They were invested in just about every airline that was formed, Pan Am being the first. And in fact, they were very black and decker. Um, Bobby Lehman reputedly paid the payroll for black and decker during the depression so it would survive. So Lehman had a very um, great admiration for new and emerging industries and a great history in them. Digital equipment, another one we founded with uh, American Research and Development. And I think that was also part of the acceptance of, of what Fred and I did together, which is this is just another enormous and emerging industry and we wanted to be part of it. Mm -hmm. At that time, we did not invest in these companies because by then investment banks had largely devolved from merchant banks into just service organizations. But, you know, when you invest your time and a big firm's reputation in an emerging sector, that is an investment. Yeah. So I want to start talking about these deals, but one more thing. And, and also this research that I was doing, I, I found that you guys were de sort of described as a, as a Wall Street power couple <laughs> more than once. And I always wondered what that was, what, what that was like. Is it as glorious as it sounds? I have no idea. I never thought of myself as a power couple. Um, I do think of Fred as, as my partner. Yeah. You know, we've been doing business together for me now 30 years. Yeah. Um, and I think true partnership is a wonderful thing um, in businesses as well as in life. I don't know what a power couple means. I don't usually feel powerful when I wake up in the morning. I'm yeah. usually wondering what on earth What's new idea I'm going to yeah. have today, you know, in order to... So it's not like you're walking down the streets while trumpets played and doors are open. No, I wouldn't right. think so. We have been at it vigorously, seriously for a long time. So we know a lot of people. And I think most clients have had good experience of us. And I think if there's any power we have, that's the power that, you know, we've been pretty constant enthusiasts and professionals for years now. Yeah. Back to the the Cetus IPO. Mm. You know, as you mentioned, that was the second biotech IPO following Genentech, and it was a back then 125 million for Cetus oh my was goodness. a huge IPO. It was the largest IPO since I believe the Ford secondary offering mm. in the 50s, and that is an enormous amount of yeah, money. Yeah, yeah. I don't know exactly what the GDP deflator is uh, between 81 and now, but it's probably 500 million dollars, something like that. And so what was it like putting that, that IPO together? And, and how uh, you'll have to inform me, how did this work? Did, did Cetus come to you? You were already uh, We were banking? already working with Cetus. And they said, we want to go public. And, and we hadn't actually thought that these companies could go public. But the, the key offering, the most famous offering was Genentech, mm -hmm. which came public at, as I recall, the price was 36 or 38. And the stock jumped to 80 the first day. And um, that was the sign that yeah, there was it an wasn't appetite. simply industrial investors, that there was very significant retail and institutional interest. And so about uh, eight or nine months later, we brought Cetus public and um, raised much more money than Genentech did. Um, and Cetus had, at the time, um, a somewhat broader portfolio than Genentech had. But there were others after that. There was sort of a lag of a year or so, and then some of the other first-generation companies, the Amgens, the Chirons, and so forth. You worked on Amgen and Immunex, that merger. I did. I was very lucky to represent um, Amgen along with uh, Goldman Sachs. And um, I'm also happy to say 
that I recall exactly what my projections for Enbrel were, and they have ah, been exceeded. I want to talk about that yeah. because I remember when the deal happened. That was um, either fifteen or sixteen billion dollars. Seventeen. Merger. You have a good memory. And it was um, by hands down the largest merger in the industry at the time. And the 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 bone of contention was was Amgen overpaying for this drug, Enbrel, which may or may not meet these lofty expectations. I don't even think it was on a blockbuster path at that time. Immunex had had some trouble manufacturing. That's correct. Immunex had a lot of trouble manufacturing. They were and finally, the Rhode Island plant finally came up. Uh, I don't think anyone ever thought that Enbrel, and more importantly, the class of drugs, who would have thought that Humira, which is the fifth entrant, you know, would be the biggest drug in the world. Yep. I think one of the things that we have underestimated um, in thinking about healthcare costs and products and their projections is when you have a good drug, people stay on it a long time. Mm-hmm. It certainly proved true in Gleevec. People lived longer. That's what made that drug so big. Mm. Big, Of course, there have been pricing increases, and that's a sensitive sure. subject socially and for the industry as a whole, especially right now. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't think I expected there'd be five. No, and five drugs TNF in that class. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. But and so you said you nailed the, the projections for Enbrel. I nailed the projections because I did feel that it, for rheumatoid arthritis, it's a chronic disease. If you could improve it and slow joint degradation, people would live longer if it was well tolerated, people would be on it for life. And 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 uh, Amgen also did a good job of uh, broadening the the label for that drug. Exactly as well. right. That is critical to really do robust trials to broaden labels in these drugs, to do them safely. So was that a hard deal to pull off? Well, it was in a number of ways. First of all, at the time, Amgen was introducing second generation epigen and nupigen, the long acting mm-hmm. versions. And they were, understandably, not extremely detailed about how they expected that mix to shift. So the street was quite nervous about Amgen stock. Um, People were nervous about Immunex, but it was pretty clear that they were going to solve their manufacturing problem. So actually, Immunex's stock kept rising through the negotiation period, and Amgen's was pretty wobbly. And I finally convinced Amgen to give much more clarity on the product mix shift because whatever scenario you looked at, it was pretty, pretty positive change. And um, we managed to negotiate the deal. Then when it was announced um, in the second or third week in December, the initial reaction, as you said, was pretty poor. People thought they overpaid paid yeah. too much and Amgen's stock went down a lot. And I remember a number of Money managers who, like me, are still doing what they were doing then, calling me up and saying, how could you announce a deal oh, at the end of the year that right. just ruined my performance? Right, yeah. I mean, when I went to um, the Hamburg and Quist conference, you know, th- three or four weeks later, people wouldn't even speak with me. <laughs> that's, you, just for listeners, that's now the J.P. Morgan conference now in January. Now that's the J.P. Right? Morgan conference, right, yeah. But it's at a, the time, it was Hamburg and Quist. I'm yeah. dating myself. No, no. I mean, <laughs> I remember when it was h and I, I remember that as well. Yeah. But I have a question about that. Um, as you mentioned, so the negotiations were going on, and Immunex's stock kept rising. How does that play out in the negotiations? I mean, was the price Badly. already being, I mean, was Amgen already – they'd already set what they thought the price should be per share? Um, yes. Um, actually, Amgen's stock improved after we gave an analyst day that um, clarified what the shift was going mm-hmm. to be between new Lasta and Nupigen and Epigen and, and long-acting. And that finally made it possible to do an exchange ratio that's satisfied. Both. I see. Okay. So it was a combination of getting Amgen stock a little higher and, and yeah. then um, finding a price point. Interesting. Yeah. I, I, I remember it because I don't think that one had leaked at all. I think that one no, just came no down. Yeah. Uh, amazing. Well, interestingly, uh, the other just technical factor was that Immunex had been added to the Standard Poor's 500 index, which always causes an increase in a company's stock price because mm-hmm. all the index funds have to buy it to balance right. the portfolio against the index. So, you know, that was also a point of negotiation. Was this a genuine, genuine value-driven improvement or right. was it a t- How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Tactical improvement. But in the end it worked out. It was a very good deal for both. Because um while Immunex had wonderful science, it didn't have very much of a pipeline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Amgen was really looking for another big drug to big add, drug, add to its yeah. own there. Um, and I, I think you – well, I'm sure there's scores of um, deals that you've worked on. But the other one that stands out in my memory is uh, Roche Genentech. Oh, yes. So yes. that was the original? Well, we did that deal several times. Um, actually, the initial Roche deal was as much Fred's as it was mine, although we both worked on it. Because at the same time, I was doing Rhone Poulenc Rohrer mm-hmm. in Europe. So I was commuting back and forth between New York, Paris, and California. So the Roche Genentech deal was a fascinating deal, and I like to think, perhaps with too much pride, that it's one of the best ever done in the industry. Certainly it was durable. You must remember that at the time, the big pharmaceutical companies were pretty much old-fashioned chemistry Mm -hmm. companies, small molecules, anti-infectives. And um, Roche was wise enough to know that they really needed this new biology. And they were also wise enough to know that they probably shouldn't just buy it and absorb it because then they might kill the innovation engine. How do you think they knew that, though? Was that, that's because the part the that Because the management out. of Roche for several generations now has been extremely enlightened. For example, years ago, they decided they had to be in the diagnostics business, not simply the therapeutics business, that inevitably those businesses were linked. And that's been a very controversial point of view until recently when now we know with the availability of genomics that that's right. Mm -hmm. So um, the biomarker drive that's going on now to get better performing drugs. Anyway, Fritz Gerber was um, chairman and, and CEO then, and he had a very clear vision that he wanted Genentech to remain independent so a deal that was control but left the business freestanding and operating was very important. And that was reflected in the governance. There were only two people on the board of Genentech. People, the joke used to be that if you were from Roche, Basel, or New Jersey, you needed a visa to go to South San Francisco. You couldn't just drop in and create bureaucracy. And, of course, it worked very well because the Genentech pipeline emerged. Yeah, it exploded. Right. Right. Um, But, of course, Roche did want. What was unusual about that deal is, well, there were three pieces to the initial one. The first was that they bought $500 million of primary stock from Genentech. And that number came from the fact that that was the amount of money that Genentech and Roche believed Genentech would need to bring the pipeline in and reach robust commercial operations. And that was bought at market because Genentech was publicly traded, obviously. The second thing is they went out and they bought half of the stock held by the public because it was a broadly traded equity. And how, just over time? At a big premium. 
so that shareholders could recognize gains from Roche achieving a control position. Mm -hmm. And then Roche insisted on having the remaining 40% minority interest held by the public reissued as callable common stock, meaning there was a right, an option embedded in that stock for Roche to acquire the company at any time they chose at a known price. And the reason Roche wanted that was as much interestingly to protect themselves if things didn't go well so that they didn't have a tough situation and could take the company out and Mm -hmm. fix it, as well as if it did go well. So it did go well, very well. And when the second option date came around, or the first option date came around five years later, neither party particularly wanted to change change it. But obviously we had to do something. So um, by then, the board of Genentech and the management team had realized that they really wanted to be only a U.S. company, that trying to be a global pharmaceutical company just wasn't in the works. So the shape of a renewed deal became clear. Roche got very clear rights with preset financial terms for Genentech products outside the United States. Oh, that's when that happened. I didn't know that. It was not set clearly in the first deal. It turned out to be true. There were licenses done and so forth. Mm-hmm. But the success, actually, of some of those licenses also made the second deal possible. And then we uh, significantly increased the pricing on the option for the next five-year period and put in a proviso that the next time the option came due, it couldn't be renewed. Genentech either had – I mean, Roche either had to exercise or walk away. But as you know, uh, after taking it out, we were in the booming – um, genomics-driven biotech stock market mm-hmm. of the year 2000, and they very quickly reoffered it to the public at a premium to what they had paid. So Genentech went on being independent, but oh, with right. a 60-odd percent ownership by Roche. So it, Genentech, after all of that, still was public. It was much later on, after the great success of the Genentech cancer pipeline, that the very messy final chapter happened. And of course, it occurred during the financial crash, which made it exceedingly interesting because the first price that Roche offered, which was rejected by Genentech, they subsequently lowered after the financial crash. And then during the recovery period the following year, there was a great campaign by both sides. And as you know, eventually the transaction got done. At something like $45 billion. Yes, it was yeah. about forty-five billion. As you know, a lot of our readers are scientists, and and the big fear, of course, was that the science of genetics was just going to get ruined now that it was brought inside Roche. And it hasn't. You no, know, I was going to say I'm not sure that the jury's out, but it it's, uh, it certainly seems to be doing fine. And that, like you said, Roche knew enough, even if it was going to bring it in, to sort of let the scientists. Yes, and in fact, they've been very wise in that there are two separate sets of business development people. They tell everyone that. Both Roche and Genentech will compete to be a corporate partner, and they'll resolve it up at the top. And I know several instances in which they've had to and done it pretty well. Yeah, so you're a fan of Roche. You think they've done it? I'm a fan of three generations of Roche management now, including the current CEO. What's the most memorable one that you worked on or maybe your favorite? Oh, gee. Yeah, that's a tough question. That would be hard. You know, I guess I'm a deal hog. Because the thing about deals that's so engaging is even when you've done like 500 mergers, I maybe I've done more, I stopped uh-huh. counting at some point, um, and you can't get you can't get cynical because what's happening to your client or clients is the most important thing in their lives, their collective, corporate, and individual lives, and it lends an edge. Um, of importance to every single deal. And, you know, they're all tension and stress written. So there's like, no, I can't remember a single happy deal because there's always moments that are not too happy. And both sides. Both sides. Yeah. Both sides. So what's great is when you see them work out as well as, as Roche Genentech because there is a certain frustration I feel when I see people talk about a lot of my deals that didn't work out well and, you know, our mergers lousy and this, that, and the other thing. As a banker, we have very little ability to do anything about the post-merger execution. Sure. And also people forget, I think, sometimes in looking that, you know, stuff happens in the clinic. (laughs) 
<laughs> Why should we think, you know, that we should actually have, hopefully we can get to a higher rate of success in uh, drugs because, but the human body does not give up its mysteries very easily. No, it doesn't. You know, why should it? It's the most highly conserved organism in the world, right? Mm, yeah. Um, Fortunately so it, for us. Right. So it's, you, you're able to retain the human element of these these deals. Like you understand that people's lives are um, being toyed with. These are people's careers. This is their family life, you know. Um, yes, and, you know, I've also had the great good fortune to do deals on virtually every continent of the world except Antarctica. And I guess I'm such a deal hog. I'd go there if I thought the penguins <laughs> they wanted needed deals, it. <laughs> you know, or if I spoke penguin. But, you know, I did an enormous number of very large deals in, in Europe. I mean, Rome Poulenc, mm -hmm. which acquired Rohrer in a transaction structure similar to Genentech, similar. Um, we did Marion Merrill Dow um, before, right before Genentech. Um, which then subsequently we did a transaction where Hoechst acquired Marion Merrill Dow. Mm -hmm. So I worked in Germany. I sold Hoechst's vaccine business, bearing vaccines, to Chiron. I, I have spent a great deal of time um, working on French and German companies, and it's been culturally and, and professionally very rewarding, very interesting. I've done hostile tender offers in the United Kingdom. I've done hostile tender offers in Australia. So, you know, finance is a ubiquitous and worldwide language. And uh, I've been very lucky that I've had clients that were willing to accept that other than my college-level French, you know, I'm not polylingual. Mm -hmm. um, but finance is kind of a universal skill. Yeah. Accounting is kind of a universal skill. Accounting is a universal skill, although we make a great deal of hoo-ha about the difference between um, international accounting and U.S. GAAP. It's... It's really irrelevant. Hmm. How long were you guys in this team before you left for Well, for I left oh. in 1999. And I left actually for family reasons mm -hmm. because Fred and I had had a child, our only child, a son. And I would observe having been a working wife and mother, you know, my whole life. There are really only two times that one parent needs to be around the house. And that's when kids are in first go to kindergarten and first grade because mm -hmm. they're going from the family to Out, the right. broad world. And then I think in seventh and eighth grade, which fortunately my son is an absolutely wonderful kid, but those are dangerous times. Why? Um, I actually agree with you, I think, but um, but why, why seventh and eighth grade? What's important about that transition? Well, they're, they're becoming teenagers uh -huh. and discovering the opposite sex and, you know, it's you, just a complicated. Probably the most two most tumultuous years. Yeah. Okay, so then... Um, when you left, it was around seventh and eighth grade. No, 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 I left. Was... My boy was in uh, was it kindergarten or first grade, and of course, I've always had nannies because investment banking is a business where you travel a lot. Uh -huh. You travel on no notice, uh -huh. and, and I, I just some parent needed to be around there more frequently and get the house better organized. So, I dropped out, thinking I would retire. I didn't retire. I did consulting work and things like that. Then. Um, East Greenberg recruited me back to Bear Stearns, so I went there for a while, which was great. Mm -hmm. That's where I did Amgen Immunex. I also did Pfizer Pharmacia, working with Alan Schwartz on that. And then again, um, when Ace retired, I left for a while because that was the other sensitive time. And then um, I built actually a reasonably good consulting business, mm -hmm. um, mostly doing licensing and strategic advice. And then, of course, when Lehman Brothers collapsed, Fred and I decided to work together again. Initially, we went to a boutique, very good boutique, uh, founded by some of our former partners at Lehman called Peter J. Solomon. Mm -hmm. And uh, more recently, we went to Burl in order to be around life sciences people because Peter J. Solomon's a great firm, but mostly focuses on retail and consumer. And so how's that going? Oh, well, you know, one thing about being in a boutique uh, that doesn't have a big equity offering franchise in the hottest IPO market in, in a decade yeah. is you don't do a lot of IPOs, which are such great fun. Um, so I've, we've missed that. But um, generally, a better capital market actually makes for many more opportunities, not simply in the equity market, because um, boards of directors feel more expansive. The pharmaceutical companies recognize that now they have competition mm -hmm. from public market investors. So actually more deals get done 
because they're not sitting around waiting for someone to get so weak that they can cut Snap a really up, great right. deal. Yeah. So all, all in all, it's quite beneficial. And then you just mentioned that um, IPOs are fun. Why, why are they fun to do? Well, it's intellectually such an interesting activity because, first of all, you meet a new company. Mm-hmm. Often it will be really new technology. Um, you have to figure out how to best position that story, that equity to story other, to yeah. the investors mm-hmm. and who are the investors who will be most interested and why. Um, you really always have to refresh whatever else is going on in the pipeline or the diagnostics world or the instrumentation world when you do an IPO because it's a different class of asset than buying a stock that's already trading for a money manager. Even a money manager who spends his whole life on life sciences, much less a general investor. Um, it causes you to take a very thorough look to figure out, do you want to own it at all? Mm-hmm. Do you want to own it only at a price? Do you want to own it because you're convinced it's going to become a very, very big company, so maybe you're not quite so price sensitive? And then there are market and technical factors. Even if I want to own it because I believe it's going to be really big, maybe this market's weakening or it's not so great, I could buy it cheaper later. Um, And there are a lot of other technical issues. For example, if someone really does want to own a particular equity because they believe in it very long term, they probably will buy it on the IPO because you can buy a block at a known and set price, but then maybe not. Mm -hmm. I I always kind of assume that uh, mergers and acquisitions are a lot of fun as well, but it sounds like maybe IPOs are the the deals you prefer to work on. Oh, they're both fun. You know, I mean, you either have to like the wear and tear and the unexpected and sometimes shocking changes um, that will come during the course of of a deal or not. Mm -hmm. You can't stay in this, my business anyway, and be durable without it. So let me ask you about a couple of current current things. Mm -hmm. Number one is, as you mentioned, uh, the hot IPO market. Mm -hmm. Do you have um, have thoughts on that? And by that, I mean, you know, there's obviously discussion where this is a bubble or not, when it's going to end, et cetera. And I'm interested in your thoughts. Well, first of all, uh, most hot IPO markets are not only in life sciences. I mean, the hotter IPO market has actually been technology, mm-hmm. which I no longer follow closely enough to have more than a general view of. Um, second, they're always driven by something. Okay, so on the tech side, you know, it's social media, it's mobile, mobile everything. Mm-hmm. What is it that's driven it on the life sciences side? Okay, so there are a number of fundamental drivers under it that I don't think are going away. So I don't think it just disappears into a nuclear winter. I certainly hope not. Mm -hmm. First, um, FDA has approved more new drugs. And breakthrough therapeutic status, um, fast track, really do work. We, We have demonstrable knowledge of it. Um, they've accepted biomarkers and surrogate endpoints. So, you know, the thing that's been killing the industry, not just small companies, but big ones, is that development costs have been rising much more, I mean, dramatically over the last eight to ten years. I mean, it used to be you could take a cancer therapeutic through phase three for maybe a total development program of about $50 million. That's the cost of a single phase three trial. Yeah, yeah. Right. Now, some of it is because of earlier successes and you're putting your new drug on top of existing standard of care. But some of it is simply that FDA had become so rigorous that development costs were rising more sharply than either approvals or revenues. So I think that's the first fundamental driver that investors now see a way through the biggest problem of the industry, which is not innovation. It's not, you know, inefficiency or bureaucracy. It's actually the development costs have risen too high, too fast for rates of return to have been good. And you can also see that's why they're so interested in orphan drugs. Most very sophisticated investors aren't all that worried about pricing on orphan drugs because the real thing about orphan drugs is the development costs are small. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the first thing. F- FDA really change, see change in approach across the face of uh, the approval process. Um, science and fundamentals in clinical development. I mean, we really don't yet have biomarkers universally 
for every drug, but definitely the industry is on, on a, a path to have what I call markers for drug response. And that's a good thing because mm-hmm. we all know that we're giving drugs to people who don't respond to them. We just don't know why, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think the third thing, ironically, is now the shiny face of what has been a very dark coin, and that is the troubles the venture capital industry has gone through and the fact that company formation actually declined over the last couple of years mm-hmm. as people were not able to raise new venture funds because limited partners had better places to put their money and there wasn't there weren't enough liquidity events from IPOs or mergers to make a fund work. And I think therefore you had many fewer products in late stage, which was where pharmaceutical companies wanted to do licenses or acquisitions, you know, phase late phase two, phase three. So um, a scarcity of assets and um, the realization that you still can, can get alpha returns in, in the right kind of company um, has also created a, a sort of source of enormous demand. And I think the most excellent fact about this IPO market is that you're seeing much broader-based companies come out, what we used to call platform companies that had a big landscape of technology. And the question was, how would they develop it? Platform companies have been completely out from an investor point of view. They wanted single-asset companies mm-hmm. that you know were built to be sold. And this market has been much broader than that. In fact, virtually any business model has been acceptable. Um, in both public and private capital markets because of some of the recent successes. So I think it's pretty broad-based. Definitely valuations got out of hand last autumn. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but I think the good sign is you are still seeing initial public offerings getting done. Investors are becoming very picky on price. So to return to what I said earlier, IPOs are an asset class in any industry. And the question is, do I not want to own it? Do I want to own it only at a price? Mm-hmm. Do I want to own it long term, long term, or at any price? Mm-hmm. Um, there's almost no company where any investor really says I want to own it at any price long term. Last fall was an example of momentum, and uh, you know all of the stocks were going up post IPO so enormously that just as a matter of portfolio returns, you owe it to your investors to play in that game. Yeah, but I think. As that has subsided, you have a much healthier climate where people really look at valuation and really look at provenance of the technology and quality of the development, you know, or the instrument and quality of the management, you know, the basics. Um, Switching topics here, but Yale opening up to women, uh, (laughs) Lehman Brothers being sort of a a boys club in the beginning there for you. Do do you feel like, I mean, there's been that same criticism that biotech is kind of a, a boys club. I mean, it's heavily, heavily dominated by men, even still. Um, do you see that changing much? Oh, I think it's changed a lot. I mean, I'm doing, um, I'm representing a, a big private equity fund right now that's trying to help a public company buy a division of a big company. And, you know, the private equity, the junior private equity partner is a woman, enormously talented, decade or more of experience. Um, so, you know, I like to think of myself as the original feminist. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really was. I broke the glass ceiling. I was the first woman managing director of any major Wall Street firm, at least in corporate finance, you know, which was always the ultimate boys club. Yeah. And that, and that was in 1983, 10 years before Goldman Sachs made a woman partner. So a lot has changed. I think there is an inherent conservatism among investors, um, venture capitalists, um, public market investors, about managements. You want proven managements. On the other hand, there are a number of successful serial women CEOs in biotech. DuPont has a female CEO, and she's dynamite, really talented, scientist by background, Mm -hmm. transforming DuPont. I can't imagine what Eleutheo DuPont and his children are thinking in their graves as she's hiving off, you know, Kevlar and, mm-hmm. and all of the legacy chemistry of, of DuPont to, to go in the direction of life sciences. Um, 
but you know, um, it's still tough. I think the issue is not prejudice. I think the issue is that women have choices that men often don't have. I mean, I did drop out in kindergarten and first grade and seventh and eighth grade. For, I was fortunate I could come back and yeah. still have a powerful career. Um, but then I've, I was lucky to make enough money to always have you know, Help. someone to take care yeah. of my child um, and someone to do my laundry, <laughs> which not every working woman has. So I think that uh, women have burdens that guys don't have and we make choices about that. Well, let's let's talk about that for one second because maybe the answer is um, instead of women dropping out and going home, that the men drop out. I mean, is that Well, I know some couples where that's the case. Um, very talented couples, uh, some some husbands who teach, you know, at a high school or, or do research but have a very nine-to-five job. Mm-hmm. I think that's great. I think it's just – it's been an untraditional, you know, kind of approach. And it's a good thing that society is kind of traditional. That's what keeps the glue together, you mm. know. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and then one more thing because we talked about this on the phone too. Uh, your son is now right around the age where he's beginning to think about a, a career. Um, what advice do you have for him or actually anybody around that age who's thinking about a career? Maybe, you know, do you think about the life sciences? Is he thinking about it or is he going in some other direction? Well, my son always introduces himself if we're having some kind of industry party at our house as the black sheep of the family because he's the only one who doesn't like science, uh-huh. um, even though he did very well in high school science. He's just not interested. Um, he's basically concentrated on finance but on money management as mm. opposed to sort of investment banking. Right. Uh, he's a very good eye for stock picking. Um, he's a pretty good eye for business models. Uh, he's done three years of internships at U.S. Trust and research. He also is extremely interested in sports, like most young men, but he knows a lot about the s- sports business as an industry. I think right now his dream is actually to start a money management firm that would help athletes keep their money hmm. because, you know, there's a very compelling series of things you can read on ESPN called Broke, you know, yeah, about, where athletes have not managed about their money. How well. unfortunately the financial community preys on, on these athletes. So that's where he's at now. Um, you know, you never know. At twenty one, I never thought I'd be an investment banker. Exactly. So we'll right. see. No, I think he's um, fairly knowledgeable about um, biotech and business models and so forth because he grew up with those questions over his cornflakes. Um, my advice. My advice is real easy. My advice is you have got to really love what you are doing and the doing of it. I never hire anybody when who says to me, well, my long-term goal is to do this and make a lot of money and retire at 40 and whatever. Because people like that won't, unless they maybe they're just They just got lucky, lucky somehow, right. You know, somehow. Um, you've really got to like the doing of whatever you do. So when you get up in the morning, the idea that you're going to have a 10 to 14-hour day doesn't bother you, in fact. You like it. it. And if you're not passionate about it, you won't get to be the best at it, and you probably won't succeed, especially in a world now that's much more competitive than it used to be. And I think that's the bottom line on it, because if you really like it, I mean, you do need to think about the appurtenances of it. You know, you don't want to go work in the Midwest if you like to sail. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) I mean, there's a lot of practical things you have to think about. Um, But You've got to be passionate about it because you're going to work more in your life than you're going to sleep. In fact, sleeping is the only other thing you do as much of yep. as work. So that's the key. you got to love it. Really appreciate the time. Thanks for coming in. Pleasure. There, our First Rounders podcast with Mary Tanner. Hope you enjoyed that. I did. Thanks to Mary for coming into our studio. Um, as usual, I'd like to thank the Midwest Quiet for use of their music. Uh, I would like to also tell you that you can find our archives for these podcasts on our homepage. You can find these podcasts in Stitcher or on Stitcher or inside of Stitcher. You can find them in iTunes, and you can subscribe to our feed in all those places. So thanks for listening. Now we will bring you out with a little bit of music. Goodbye.
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.